0: All right. So now to the situation in Eastern Europe, Uh, literally um, major stories almost every hour on the hour. It's absolutely remarkable. Uh, Here's the latest. Um, The president of Ukraine said he has signed an official request for Ukraine to join the EU ASAP, like expedite this. Let's do it now. Uh, This comes as talks to try and secure a ceasefire with Russia have wrapped up in Belarus Uh, Not sure if there's any progress. Not sure if any progress was realistically expected to come out of that meeting. Uh, Meanwhile, Ottawa has announced it's prohibiting all Canadian financial institutions from engaging in any transactions whatsoever with Russia's central bank. Um, More shelling continues in parts of Ukraine. Uh, Facebook pulling down fake pro-Putin postings and profiles. I mean, it just... One thing after another, but one of the announcements that took place this weekend, one of the developments that took place this weekend that caught the attention of, I think, everybody who's been paying attention to this was the fact that Russian President Vladimir Putin basically ratcheted up the threats around nuclear war to a level we have not seen in a very, very long time. What he did was tell his top defense and military officials to put nuclear forces in a, quote, special regime of combat duty. What exactly does that mean? What does that mean to the United States? Do they have to take similar steps? Does this really change things? Uh, I don't know, and I don't want to speculate on issues like this. So we've brought in an expert to try and help us understand this. We have Dr. James Ferguson joining us. Uh, Dr. Ferguson is Deputy Director at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Ferguson, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's just start right there. This announcement by Putin on Sunday to put nuclear forces in a special regime of combat duty. Uh, Make that understandable for me.
1: Well, it's difficult to know the categories that the Russians employ in terms of the status of their strategic theater or tactical nuclear forces. Uh, If you put it in comparison to the United States in sort of the worst case thinking, This would be equivalent to uh, the American, what's known as the American Defense Condition 3. DEFCON 3. DEFCON 3. One level before conventional war, which is DEFCON 2, and DEFCON 1 is nuclear war. Um, I think we have to think about this in two ways. Uh, If this has really any military significance and reflects potential Russian thinking about the need to escalate, uh, you'd see a lot of movement or actions. Right. So, for example, uh, the Russians, like the United States, maintains their intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missile forces, their land-based forces uh, with command and control on a 24-hour day, seven days a week basis. Uh, so you're not going to see much activity except for mobile systems being moved into the field. Uh, they keep, like the United States, on station, uh, at sea, uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, For the Russians, those are normally bastioned under the Arctic ice uh, for difficult detection by American anti submarine forces. Uh, Bombers, again, some are in the air, uh, usually on training exercise, and this, of course, is where NORAD comes in. But by and large, what you'd expect to see is a surge of activity, that you'd start to see, for example, with submarine launched ballistic missiles, that the Russians would start to surge forward or out of port, such as Archangel. Uh, more submarine ballistic missile launchers, launching fleet. Uh, I don't know what U.S. intelligence knows, but it can see what's going on. uh, And I don't think that this is what we're really talking about right now. I see this more in political terms. This is a political message to the West. uh, But... It certainly has been made clear by the West and the United States that we have no intention of intervening militarily into this conflict. Uh, The nuclear threat, if that's what you want to think of from the Russians, is is not going to significantly alter the current sanctions policies undertaken by the West. So I tend to think this is a message more to domestic public opinions in the West, trying to ignite uh, the old anti-nuclear movement that used to demonstrate during the Cold War. You bring thousands into the street to try to put some domestic political pressures for the West to perhaps alter or soften their policies. Uh, Whether it be successful or not, I don't know. But that's the way I tend to see this.
0: And, And like you say, Doc... What we're seeing from the United States appears to be in line with what you're thinking, at least what we know. They're not playing tit for tat. They're not ramping up their rate, uh, level of readiness or whatever the case may be. They're not responding. And there was a lot of thought that was, you know, if Russia goes ahead and takes this step and changes their status, the U.S. by you know, default has to do the same or else it would be a huge error. But it looks like they're sort of saying, OK, we're not going to play that game. We're going to just sit back and, and, and call your bluff, essentially
1: yeah if you want to call call your bluff but let me give you an example of this from the past in the 1973 Yom kippur war uh where the indications emerged as the war ebbed and flowed between the israelis and the arab nations uh the russians began to move paratroopers into launch points in the crimea and elsewhere in southern russia and threatened to intervene as peacekeepers to bring that conflict to a halt uh, the Americans responded by going to DEFCON 3 uh, basically to send a message to the Russians, don't go there Yeah, and the Russians backed off they didn't reply tit for tat and I don't think the Americans are going to reply tit for tat, there's no need to There's, and this is part of the problem of this because this is more about political signaling and messaging to me than actually strategic uh, considerations about how this might escalate per se because it the fear that we're suddenly going to get into a strategic nuclear exchange, I think, is extremely far-fetched or extremely unlikely.
0: That uh, is good to hear. The United
1: States maintains uh, its forces on alert. Right. It has strategic forces that can't be disarmed, uh, no matter what the Russians do. Uh, so y- y- they don't need to. And in, in other words, the Americans don't need to do anything. And certainly trying to signal, by, we'll do this too, is a, would be a very dangerous move.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned the whole uh, getting involved, but, say, but being very clear about the fact we will not have U.S. troops in Ukraine engaged in combat with Russia, even when it comes to, you know, um, air defense, anything like that. They're going right up to this edge, it seems. What, how far can they go before it gets to a point where Russia says, well, now you are engaged with us? I mean, what is the line? Because they're, they're going as far as they can. But at this point, like you say, they're being very clear we're not going to engage
1: uh they've reached the point okay and a good example is and again as you probably know in war truth is the first casualty on all sides uh and it's hard for us in the uh, public world to know what's really happening but if you notice in terms of the military sales that the west the United States and Canada as well <clears throat> have said they've promised to Ukraine in the context of this war they have been, been very careful to keep them all in the realm of defense capabilities, air defense capabilities in particular, mm-hmm. body armor, helmets, rifles. We're not sending them, and that's across, across the line, if you start to send them tanks and offensive capabilities, and then a question of potentially sending along with them tactical advisors, uh, that starts to get very dangerous. So they've reached the far, we've reached the line where we're not going to step out across. And maybe, I mean, if you want to be a little critical of Western policy, uh, maybe the West needs to signal itself and back away a little bit, or at least pause what it's doing. Uh, To give you another example, in 1968, when the Soviets uh, invaded Czechoslovakia to bring it back into line with the Eastern Bloc. uh, what NATO did and the United States did was not to ramp up because you have massive Soviet and Warsaw Pact forces moving into Czechoslovakia. It was not to ramp up. They actually, what NATO in the West did was stood down. Its forces were stood down to sig- clearly signal, we're not doing nothing here. Yeah. So th- that's, I think, an important, again, diplomatic issue in terms of not thinking per se about the outcome of the war or the various possibilities of how it would turn out, but also starting to think about what's going to happen when this ends. Uh, we can't continue on with this hostile relationship with Moscow, and nowhere can Moscow continue on. So with steps to start slowly diplomatically have to be taken to find a way out of
0: this morass. Doc, I've got a couple more questions for you, but I need to take a break. Can you hold on? Sure. Okay, excellent. Uh, we'll be right back with... Um, Dr. James Ferguson at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. We'll be back right after this. We're talking with Dr. James Ferguson, Deputy Director at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. And, Doctor, the question I want to ask is we're all seeing these wonderful, wonderful examples of bravery and courage among the Ukrainian citizenry. You know, taking up arms and and, and you know, forces doing remarkable things and stuff like that. Um, and I think we're all encouraged and we're all thinking, wow, this is really exciting and interesting. But in reality, in reality, the outcome of this it can really only end one way, correct? I mean, Russia is, you're talking about one of the military superpowers on this planet.
1: Well, exactly, exactly. And we have to think when we see these reports, we have to consider also specifically what Russian military objectives are. Uh, It doesn't look like, and although they penetrated into Ukraine as best as I can figure, it doesn't look like this is some form of blitzkrieg to roll over the whole country as fast as they can. Uh, it seems to be very paused, gradual in nature. And I'm not trying to degrade the the fighting skills right, of yeah. the Ukrainian army at all. But we know what how this will eventually turn out. Uh, this becomes questions of at what point, and we saw the negotiations, which probably failed. But this is probably a question of uh, a Russian diktat. Uh I don't think, in my view, that the Russians really are interested in trying to absorb all the Ukraine and then try to manage that mess that there will be, certainly. They'll be facing an insurgency probably uh, in minutes if they try to do that. Nor necessarily do they want to replace the government. They want the government to come to heel relative to avoiding such things, as I heard on your news just now, I didn't heard this, that the president of Ukraine uh, wants immediately to join the EU that's not happening. That's not on. And it doesn't help trying to find a diplomatic resolution to this. Uh, And you can imagine there's a limited objectives here for the Russians. Uh, uh, One of them, of course, is, is obviously going to be a Russian Ukrainian declaration of neutrality Mm -hmm. uh, and to reject publicly any thoughts of joining NATO, which would be a step in the right direction. Issues about, recognizing Crimea having been lost, perhaps how to manage the Donuts Basin uh, separatist movements, um, implement the Minsk Accords, which the Russians say the Ukrainians never have. So there's a way you can see a limited, but eventually time is not on the side. That's right. Because you've got to, you've got to come to the Russians will want this to end as quick as I figure as they can, because it becomes very costly to them. Um, so you, you reach a point where they will drive forward or you'll see a diplomatic resolution to this.
0: Um, and I'm just wondering, in, in talking to other military experts and things over the past week or so, it seems to me the consensus is it's a containment strategy for the West, recognizing that, okay, we going in and trying to fight for Ukraine, uh, we know where that's going to lead. That's not an option available to us, but we have to make sure that it doesn't get into a NATO territory or an allied country. So it looks like almost parts of Ukraine at least are being written off in this in in terms of NATO and the EU and the Western world. Exactly. And
1: there's no diplomatic choice, but uh, the Russians knew that, of course, when they calculated on Crimea that we couldn't do anything and wouldn't do anything. It would be very difficult for us. Uh, If you think about the, the... Relatively small, but still significant forward deployment of forces, uh, the United States sending more troops to Europe uh, uh, and other steps that have been taken. This is as much not simply signal Moscow not to go any further, but it's also to reassure all those forward allies who are vulnerable that the West will be there, that NATO will be there to defend them. So it is it is. You're right. A containment strategy is a good way to see this in terms of the
0: limits of the NATO alliance does that come up i mean are those the kind of discussions that are happening do you think with ukraine saying listen guys you, you can prevent the loss of a lot of life here we, we really respect what you're doing and the stand that you're taking but at the end of the day the outcome is predetermined
1: if i understand you correctly yeah the outcome is predetermined and it's in the hands of the ukrainian government
0: So uh, uh, is like Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau. And uh, are they sitting down and saying, listen, just negotiate this, get the because we know how this is going to end and you don't need to lose all this life and have the refugee situation and all the rest. All that can be avoided if you just, for lack of a better word, concede as awful as that is.
1: I would hope that's what they're telling them, but that's what they should have been
0: communicating to the Ukrainian government
1: long before this blew up in their face for years now. You have to be realistic of the world you live in, your neighborhood.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because
1: uh, if you compare this to, you think about the, the Russians after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the independent republics, and this idea that Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Well, Moldavia, Belarus, Georgia, Kazakhstan, the Stans, uh, there have been numerous opportunities for the Russians to reabsorb them, and they haven't. hmm and part of the reasons, in my view, they haven't is because their leadership there, for good or ill, and no one likes the dictatorship in Belarus, knows very well the limits of how far they can go. Uh, and it's no different from if you think in terms of, and again, this is not a popular thing to say, but in terms of think about the United States and its uh, political actions against Cuba in the, in the American backyard. Same thing happens. There's limits. Yeah and you have to be realistic morality democracy freedom all this is very nice but we're into the world of international politics and great power politics
0: yeah and then and and the realization as hard as it is doctor i I think you know we all know what it is but I, i can't thank you enough for your time we will chat again, sir. thank you so much